The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn to Esther chapter 6, which is about God's providence. And certainly Romans 8 is a text that speaks of that same theme. Esther has a number of dark providences in it when we stop to think about it. Haman's wicked plot against the Jews. And even really when we stop to think about it, Esther's situation um, unwillingly, I'm certain, being brought into the harem of the king. And even though she was made queen, not what a Jewish woman would probably want. And so we come to Esther chapter 6, a very important chapter in the book. Let us give heed to God's word, Esther chapter 6. On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. 
While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. This is the word of God. What we call God's providence could be defined as God's control of all things for the accomplishing of his good purposes. Providence is a biblical teaching that in one sense we believe and we understand it. We know that the Bible says that this is true, but in another sense we know that it's beyond us. It is high above us in that God's God's thoughts are above our thoughts and God's paths are beyond tracing out, as it says at the end of Romans chapter 11. Yet here in Esther 6, we see one of the most remarkable providences of God in all of Scripture. In fact, there are multiple providences before us here. Of course, I'm sure there are more than we even see here, because when you think about what providence is, God's control of billions and billions or trillions of trillions of people's events and events and activities throughout the history of the world, it is truly so far above us. But some of the things that we see here, we see that King Ahasuerus cannot sleep. That's the beginning of what makes this such a remarkable chapter, and it's such a mundane thing. It doesn't even say that he had some special dream from God or not from God. It doesn't say that he was burdened and concerned. Maybe he should have been because he had issued an edict that was going to commit genocide to the Jews. He didn't seem to be have any problems sleeping through that, but he simply cannot sleep. And then, in his insomnia, the king decides to have a servant read to him from the chronicles of his reign. He had other options. I'm sure he could have uh, had them bring him a, a nice midnight snack or, you know, he's got this large harem. Uh, he's got all kinds of options as the king, but maybe he simply had this choice because it was boring. You know, if you read the history of your kingdom, it may be that you'll go back to sleep. I don't know why he chose to have this done, but he made this choice of all the options that he could at that point. And then, a further providence beyond that, the particular section of the chronicles of his reign that the servant apparently chose to read, we we don't know if he told the servant to read in a particular place or just opened it up and started to read, it concerned Mordecai and an event concerning Mordecai that had occurred five years beforehand when he had uncovered this plot against the king's life. And then beyond that, one further remarkable providence, we might say, is just when the king decides he needs his advisors. You know, one of the things we see about the king here is that he always needs his advisors. He really can't decide anything on his own. He he just seems like he needs somebody telling him what to do. And it's in the middle of the night or early morning at this point, and he needs his advisors. And he asks the servants, who's in the outer court? Are any of my advisors there? And just at that moment, Haman has entered the outer court. And so unfolds a chapter which begins an amazing turnaround of the fortunes of Esther and Mordecai and the people of God throughout the Persian Empire. Along with the beginning of the end of Haman, the enemy of God's people. 
And it all starts with a sleepless night. One commentator remarks that Esther chapter 6 is the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. I don't know if you felt that way. It's a chapter that certainly causes us to smile, maybe because we've read it before. It doesn't cause us to smile as much as maybe some of you are hearing it read for the first time. I don't know. But if I didn't hear any of you break out in laughter as I read it, but it does cause a humorous kind of smile to uh, come into our hearts. As Haman becomes a classic textbook case of the verse, pride goes before a fall, right? If ever that was true, it certainly is here. Hitler, as I read this and I thought about it this week, Haman reminds me of Hitler and another remarkable providence of God. If you know anything about World War II, in December of 1944, which was getting near to the end of the war, Hitler himself makes a decision that he hoped would be the turning point of the war in Europe, at least bringing the Allies to the point of negotiating a settlement or a surrender that wouldn't be unconditional surrender. It was something that he had dreamed up himself, and it was codenamed Herbst Nebel. Autumn Mist was the code name of the military operation Hitler himself dreamed up and told all his top commanders and prepared for, in which thousands upon thousands of German troops and German tanks and German supplies were secretly amassed along this 60-mile portion of the Western Front, which the Allies never found out about. They had information about it, but they just never connected the dots And so, early on the morning of December 16th, this massive force was unleashed against the American forces along that 60-mile front, and the ensuing battle came to be called the Battle of the Bulge, the greatest battle ever fought in the history of the United States. As it turned out, in the days and weeks of that terrible fighting, The American line bulged, so the name bulge, it bulged back, it gave way some, but the American line didn't break, and the losses on on both sides were very great. But the irony, and the reason it reminds me in some ways of Haman and this chapter, is that the result of the Battle of the Bulge was that it hastened the end of the war and the end of Adolf Hitler, almost unlike anything else the Allied commanders could have dreamed up, Hitler himself. The very military operation that Hitler meant to bring victory, or at least a better surrender, an operation that Hitler himself personally oversaw, ultimately hastened his fall. I would say that's a remarkable providence. Well, what do we learn thinking about the providence of God? What do we learn from Esther 6, and this amazing picture of the providence of God. The first thing I'd like us to see is this. The turning point of the book of Esther is God's doing. The turning point from when the Jews are having reversal upon reversal and seemingly are going to be destroyed to when they are saved, the reversal, the key hinge of the book in Esther 6 takes place at God's doing, not human doing. There's 
studies on the structure of the book of Esther based on the feasts that are listed in the book. The word feast or banquet is listed some 22 or 24 times in the book, almost as much as everywhere else in the Old Testament combined, because part of the purpose of the book is described why the Feast of Purim is to be observed by the Jews. But the structure of the book also keys in on chapter 6. Part of the structure of the book has a paired feast, two, two feasts paired at the beginning, and then two paired feasts near the end of the book. But in the middle of the book, in chapters 5 and 7, is the middle pair of feasts, which is the two banquets that Esther has. And one's before Esther 6, and one is after Esther 6. Well, what, humanly speaking, is happening in chapter 6? No one is doing anything. It's nighttime. The king is asleep. That's where the reversal begins. It's really an amazing structural literary device, and it's amazing historical truth. The structure of the book just points to the history here. Up until chapter 6, things for the people of God, things for Mordecai and Esther, have been getting progressively worse. And we have read the book, so we know things are going to turn out well in the end. So we may probably look and read it in a different way than they were experiencing it. Uh, To be experiencing what was going on here, deliverance was by no means certain. I described the Battle of the Bulge for you. We all know the ending of that, right? So it's kind of neat to read about it and, yeah, sit in our armchair. and Yeah, but anyone who went through that, you weren't sure if you were going to live, and many didn't live. So in Esther, Esther herself has this plan. She has already gone to the king. She's been courageous. She's decided she's going to go to the king. She's, she's got her plan for her two banquets. She's already had the first one. But by no means is there any guarantee her plan is going to work. One person likens Esther's plan to an emergency room doctor performing emergency surgery on someone that this is the last hope. Kind of like in the Civil War, Pickett's Charge, and somebody operating on a soldier injured in the war. I don't know what the percentage chance of... uh, recovery from that would be, but it wasn't that good. Well, that's what this author is likening Esther's plan to. It was a plan, but by no means was it clear that it was going to succeed. And for Mordecai up to this point, we know that the end of chapter 5, things for Mordecai are very bleak. Haman has built the gallows for him, the stake that he's going to be impaled on and, and destroyed on. What happens The king can't sleep. It's God's doing, isn't it? God is at work. It comes out clearly in the book. It's clear that it's not a human instrument that is bringing about this reversal. There's a great reversal that takes place. And yes, Esther is going to be a part of that. Mordecai is a part of that. God uses human instruments, but it seems as if Esther chapter 6 is accentuating the sovereignty, the providence of God in the deliverance that takes place. 
we can look at the great hinge of history that way as well. When we think about the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, we can see ourselves and put ourselves in the plight of the Jews here in Esther, that there, there was a death sentence hanging upon them, and there was upon us as well. And Jesus Christ came at the right time in God's plan to bring about the ultimate reversal so that we who are under the curse are now blessed eternally in Jesus Christ. The turning point of the book of Esther is God's doing. And so by the end of chapter 6, it's very interesting that when Haman gets back from leading Mordecai to the city square and proclaiming before him, this is what the king does to those he loves to honor. And you just think about Haman probably was just about spitting those words by the time he got back. He probably so tired of describing and declaring them. But he gets back, and here we find this interesting description of him coming back to his wife and his advisors, his friends, his head covered now. He's in mourning. This is, his reversal has begun. And out of the, the mouth of his wise men and his wife, they say to him, Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people. You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Notice how drastically the advice of these friends have changed from the end of chapter 5 when they're advising him to build a gallows to have Mordecai destroyed. And it's not really clear exactly why their advice has so drastically changed where they were telling him that. Some commentators take the view that until chapter 6, Zeresh, his wife, and others really weren't clear on the fact that Mordecai was a Jew, that their sense of knowing that Haman's destruction is going to befall now is because they had some sense of knowing that to oppose the Jews was to oppose God himself, knowing something of the God of Israel. And partially, this could be supported by chapter 3, verse 8. I won't read that. Is when, when Haman initially goes to the king, he doesn't actually use the word Jew or Israel or anything. He just says that there's a certain people who, who are not obeying the king's laws. It's not clear who knows exactly what this edict says and who doesn't know it. But it's possible. I take the view... Some commentators take this view that Zeresh and Haman's advisors see as a divine portent of type that as Haman's reversal of fortune is beginning to take place, it's going to just continue to go south. So even though God is again not mentioned, God is never mentioned in the book, They say to him, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Clearly, the one who orchestrates this fall, and they don't probably know the true God, but they have some sense that fate or the gods or someone, things are going wrong for Haman now, and he's going to be destroyed. Even though God's name is not mentioned here. And it's really... Ironic, isn't it? That here in chapter 6, the swiftness of Haman's wife and friends to believe the final victory 
of Israel's God stands in contrast to what we have seen leading up to this point, that the book doesn't even actually record that anyone is actually praying. There's fasting, but there's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of God. It's contrasting the apparent slowness of God's people to turn to their God in their hour of need. Zeresh, the advisors, they all know something's happening and Haman's going to be destroyed. The people of God need to be built up in that belief as well. It's a difficult thing, isn't it, for us to believe the providence of God. Maybe some of you have amazing stories about the providence of God in coming to know Christ. Friends that he used in your life, maybe a book you read, maybe a track that fell into your hands, maybe driving in the car, listening to a radio station, flipping through, and a radio ministry came on and you began to hear that. There are all kinds of amazing stories And the providence of God often shines very brightly in people's accounts of how they have come to know Christ because God uses all kinds of means to do this. Or maybe you've experienced a remarkable providence of God in his guidance and direction, maybe in getting to know the person who would become your husband or wife or in getting a job that you wanted to have or or leading you to where you ended up living or ministering for many years. There's all kinds of ways that God's providence is at work. And we need to look at Esther chapter 6 and be amazed and be reminded of the providence of God in all of our lives. Even in suffering and tragic events. And aren't we all quick to describe and talk about God's providence when there are good things. It's much more difficult to speak in those ways when there are hard things. But Scripture says God's providence is over all events. Even in suffering, even in tragic events, that hymn we sang about Romans 8, I can remember the account of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce singing that hymn near the end of his life when he's been diagnosed with cancer. And he's singing that hymn, and it's said that he put his hand upon his head at some point when he sang that hymn because he's standing on Romans 8. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor and the list goes on and on, shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The path to the joy of God, as one person put it, the path to the joy of God may wind through the swamps of suffering and despair. Esther chapter 6 points us to God's providence. Secondly, we see that to oppose the people of God is to ultimately oppose God. To oppose the people of God is to ultimately oppose God. And that's what Haman has been doing throughout this book. Now, this is not to say that the people of God always do what is right, or the people of God are faithful to their God, or the people of God stand and act and speak and do the right things, but ultimately, God has bound himself to his people by covenant. 
It's interesting when the covenant of grace is announced in Genesis chapter 12, we often emphasize the, the fact that, that God promises to be with Abraham. But it's interesting in verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. We usually don't stop to think about that, that God will bless those who bless Abraham, and he will curse those who dishonor him. It reminds me of Jesus' statement in Luke chapter 10 at verse 16. Jesus says, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Here we are, lowly servants of God through faith in Christ, seeking to do God's will, and God is speaking very powerful words that he is with us. And if they reject us, they are essentially rejecting God. In the book of Acts, this shines very brightly in Acts chapter 5 when the persecution breaks out against the apostles initially. We find that the Sanhedrin is debating this, and they're standing up and discussing this. And Gamaliel, in Acts five thirty-four stands up, a teacher of the law held in honor by all, he stands up and he makes the speech. And he talks about various people who uh, caused trouble in the past. And then he gets to the point in verse 38. He says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, the disciples, and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. It's really an astounding truth, and Gamaliel was absolutely right. They did try to overthrow them, but to no avail. We know what the history of the early church is and the church throughout the ages. Esther chapter 6 is the beginning, the first, of many reversals in the book of Esther. There's going to be more to come. We're going to see unfold. But all of Haman's plans are spoiled because the king had a sleepless night. Well, we know that's just the bare statement of it. It's really spoiled because God is for his people. God has bound himself to those who trust in him. It is a very dangerous thing to oppose the people of God. Someone has described this part of the book as Haman's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I think there's a children's book out that has a title a little bit like that. Haman's terrible day should have been a Psalm 2 moment. Do you know, most of us are familiar with Psalm 2. That begins with the phrase, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And it goes on. And then it concludes... Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Would that Haman would have had a Psalm 2 moment, we might say rather than continuing in his unrepentance to have an awareness and an understanding that he needed to repent and kiss the son and turn away from his 
pathway of sin. Here was Haman with all his idolatry of power and wealth. In fact, isn't it interesting that apparently Haman had so much power and wealth when the king talked about how you would honor someone and Haman thought, well, that must be me. He doesn't ask for more wealth. He's got all the wealth he wants. Can you imagine that? Most of us can imagine more, you know, or the power. He was second only to the king. So the only advice he could come up with is, well, how about honor? So the idolatry of honor came to the forefront. Instead, Psalm 2 says, humble yourself, kiss the sun. In Christ, we see that there is hope even for the Hamans of this world who would humble themselves and kiss the sun because we really know when we stop to think about it that we are all under the curse apart from Christ. You think of Haman and really in many ways, he was not much different from the average unbeliever who thinks all is well with my soul, but without even being aware of it, there are the seeds of destruction germinating because we are all sinners and alienated from God. We might be prospering in our business or our career or our pathway in school or whatever the case might be. We might be busy pursuing our lives. We might be surrounded by people who respect us and think that we are people of good moral fiber. We might be enjoying the good life and everybody thinks that things are well, but Scripture tells us if we are relying on our own record, if we are relying on our own righteousness, then we are in bad shape indeed. Because by God's standards, standards that require absolute righteousness and holiness, we are undone. And so Haman is whisked off at the end of chapter 6 by the eunuchs of the king to Esther's banquet, and we know to his ultimate destruction. Thanks be to God that you and I still have time to turn in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved by his grace. Have you come in a Psalm 2 kind of way to kiss the Son, to trust, to take refuge in Jesus Christ? And that brings me briefly to my final point. The honoring of Mordecai should remind us of the humiliation of Jesus Christ for us. Really, Mordecai foreshadows Christ in two different ways. One, he foreshadows Christ's exaltation, doesn't he? Here he is given the king's robe. He's put on the king's horse. In in these ways, he's an illustration of, he, he may not be an actual type, but he's at least an illustration of the exaltation of Christ. But in kind of a reverse way, he's a foil He stands as a foil for Christ in his humiliation. One author describes it this way. Whereas Mordecai was dressed in royal robes, Jesus trod the road to the cross undressed, exposed to public shame. Whereas Mordecai was mounted on a royal horse, which itself was crowned with emblems of royalty, Jesus had to walk bowed down by the weight of a heavy cross. The only crown in sight on that day was the crown of thorns that his enemies had made in order to mock him. Whereas Mordecai was proclaimed publicly as the man whom the king delights to honor, Jesus was derided every step of that bitter way 
Hail, King of the Jews, mocked the Roman soldiers. Crucify him, cried the crowd. We have no king but Caesar. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him, said the chief priests and the scribes. There was no public honor for Jesus Christ on that day. Mordecai was honored. Jesus Christ walked the way of humiliation to the bitter end. And now for us, because of Christ's amazing work, the curse that we deserved has been reversed. Talk about a great reversal. That one hymn that we sang talked about not stopping to think about enough the love of Christ. It's asking, praying for forgiveness for not reflecting on the love of Christ and so being changed by his love. One of the most powerful elements in the Christian sanctification is dwelling on the love of Christ, being amazed at the love of Christ. That other hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Shouldst Die For Me. You all sang that with a great hearty gusto, I would say. But don't we easily forget that. Mordecai's honor should remind us of the humiliation of Jesus Christ and should cause us to live lives glorifying to the Lord, trusting in him, thanking him for his providence over every molecule in our lives to the glory of God. Amen. Father, thank you for this example. Thank you for your grace that lifts us up, we who deserved judgment and yet we've been given life eternal, to know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Help us to be filled with that joy, inexpressible and full of glory as we go into our lives this week, as we interact with others who don't know you, as we pray and ask you for things that are maybe hard in our lives. Help us to believe that you are who you declare yourself to be. And lift us up, we pray, with the assurance that you are our refuge and that we can trust your sovereign hand. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.